Breaking Banks Asia is brought to you today by Kamakura Co. There are known knowns. There are things we know we know. We also know there are known unknowns. That is to say, we know there are some things we do not know. But there are also unknown unknowns. The ones we don't know we don't know. <laughs> when you think of good defense strategies, you try to be aware of all the possibilities, including the unknown unknowns. If your business needs to be certain of the things you think you know, able to get clear answers to the things you don't know, and can quickly discover the important things you didn't even know you didn't know, then you probably need Chris, the Kamakura Risk Information Service. Chris provides real-time intelligence on business conditions across 68 countries, honing from 39,000 probabilities, each with exposures ranging from 30 days to 10 years. And Chris is the leading global service to ensure that you know what you need to know and can anticipate and see around the corner to see some of the things you didn't know you didn't know. If you want to know more, send an email to BBA for Breaking Banks Asia at Kamakuraco, K-A-M-A-K-U-R-A-C-O dot com, BBA at Kamakuraco dot com, and learn more about Chris and how Kamakura can help you. Fintech, or financial technology, is changing everything about the way we bank to the very concept of money itself. Welcome to Breaking Banks Asia, a podcast dedicated to exploring how this disruption is affecting the Asia-Pacific area. Here is your host, Simon Spencer. So I'm joined here today by Asha Tan, who is the co-founder and CEO of CoinJar. So welcome to Breaking Banks. Thanks, Simon. So, uh, look, CoinJar, can you take a moment and tell me what is it? What's it about? So, CoinJar is a consumer-focused digital currency platform. It helps consumers buy, sell, spend, and trade uh, their digital currency. That'd be Bitcoin, wouldn't it? Yeah, so right now it's Bitcoin, but I'm not sure if I'm letting this slip, but we're adding other digital currencies in the coming weeks as well. So, you'd, you you would... Uh allow people to buy Bitcoin or, say, Ethereum, for example, and automatically do the exchange translations between those currencies? Yep. So we allow people to buy currencies and store them on a web wallet. Uh, we've got some nifty features as well, such as hedging to uh, minimize uh, price volatility of digital currencies. We also have a debit card that allows you to cash out your digital currency at any ATM or at any card accepting terminal across Australia. So you could go to a supermarket, uh, receive some digital currency just before you enter the supermarket and pay for your groceries on the way out with your debit card. And um, is it secure? That's a big loaded question, but you know a lot of people are worried about security with Bitcoins and, and these sorts of things. Can you tell me a little bit about sort of how you deal with security? Yeah, uh, obviously very topical question for uh, Bitcoin digital currency company. Um, you know, I think the best practices in the industry have been refined after many years of operations. And I think we're just about uh, hitting five years of service. So, uh, you know, no major issues. Uh, but security in this space is a, a ongoing thing. Um, and it's many levels. One is on a user level, how do uh, users get educated to take the best steps to protect themselves? Uh, there are things uh, on a company level, we can take to protect our infrastructure. So I shouldn't mortgage my house and buy Bitcoin? No, and then there are risks as well, such as, uh, you know, how much are you invested in? Because Excuse me while I make a quick phone call. 
I guess uh, risk is all in proportion to you know how much you have on a platform and how much you're worth as well. So um, we always we are consumer focused platform, so we are more interested in more consumer related uh, transactions and activities rather than, for instance, I want to buy something that's equivalent of a house. I want to invest what would be equivalent of a value of a house. Um, You know, there are options to do it, but that's not really what we're targeting here. So you've been going for a while, which means that you got into um, blockchain and Bitcoin and this whole market very, very early. What made you get into it so early? Uh, How'd you end up to where, where you are today? Oh, that, that, that's a that's a long story that I'm not sure will fit on this podcast. Um, but but the short version. In short, I went to an incubator program. I pitched a few ideas. They thought they were all rubbish. Um, the the program said that if I was really interested in Bitcoin, I should just you know try and build a company around it. Mm-hmm. Uh, and in about an hour or two, I decided I didn't really want to go to work on Mondays, so um, it was a not a bad option. Looking back, five years of work. That's pretty amazing. Yeah, I mean, uh, there are always opportunities. I, I guess you just have to be ready for them. I don't think it's very advisable that anyone who wants to start a project, you know, just up and leave their job or um, different circumstances for different people. But I guess all you have to do is be receptive to opportunities around you, um, you know, try to maximize your upside while minimizing your downside. And then, you know, you'll be able to take advantage of as many opportunities uh, for as long as possible. Do you think being young um, at that point, you know, being early in your life, it made it easier for you to make a that a decision like this to to, to gamble a little bit and and to to choose something um, like Bitcoin or or to choose the choice make the choice of going into a startup? Do you think that helped? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, uh, you know, everyone. I don't think that startups are limited to young people. Uh, you know, I think at different stages of life, everyone has their own responsibilities and personal circumstances to deal with. Uh, and as a young person, especially in your 20s, uh, you almost always have fewer responsibilities than someone who has a family um, to deal with. So, um, you know, at that point, what was really the worst thing that could happen to me? I would be without a job, um, which, you know, it could be a big problem. But in terms of, you know, what I've gained over the last five years, uh, meeting interesting people, building very cool products. Um, yeah, I don't regret that at all. You've, you've also uh, accumulated some very interesting people around you, um, some you know, very strong mentors. So the, perhaps the experience that maybe you lacked when you were just starting off, you had access to a lot of that experience. Yeah, very quickly. I mean, it's especially at this stage of, uh, I guess, my, my startup career five years in, I uh, can really reflect back on, you know, all the bits of advice that people have given me over the years. And, you know, some of them haven't been on point, but, you know, much of that has been you know, true. And, you know, after the test of time, you see that person really knows what he or she's been talking about. So, um, yeah, very much appreciate all those, uh, all the networks that have been formed uh, over my time working on Coinja. So, so Coinja, um, anything in the Bitcoin space is, is hot. And it's a question of how do you get scale? How do you cut through? How do you, um, how do people find out about you? What's your what's your strategy? You know, how do you how do you ensure that people know about Coinjar and uh, and how do you get critical mass? Yeah, I mean, at that time, 
founded the company in 2013, uh, much more niche than it was today. Yes. Um, and all we had to do is just be a little bit better than everyone else and, uh, you know, quickly fill in the gaps for, uh, Paul Graham has his article, do yes. things that don't scale. And I think that was very much to, you know, zero to hundred, uh, people would see me at my desk, you know, signing personal letters to our users <laughs> and putting stamps and envelopes. And, you know, are you running a, a Bitcoin company? Are you, you know, doing a postcard company? Um, but those things really helped, especially because it was so new. Uh, people wanted someone they could trust, you know, so we had a lot of uh, meetups and things like that going from, you know, our first hundred, first thousand users. And, you know, undoubtedly timing helped as well. We started the company when Bitcoin was at $100 and six months later, it hit, you know, a peak for quite a while, $1,000. So um, part of it's just pure luck. But the last 90 days must have been rather interesting. Oh, I, I think the last 12 months have, you know, I think our volumes have been at least 10 times higher than they were this time last year. Um, we had about two full-time support staff working this time last year, and now we've probably into double digits right now and are still struggling to keep our heads above water in terms of, you know, new users and uh, new users requiring support as well. So uh, it's an interesting problem to have Uh and I guess we have to figure out, like many other companies in the space, how do we scale uh, to keep up with demand? Now, no doubt you wouldn't call yourself a bank, but how do you see yourself in the sort of fintech landscape? Are you? Do you see yourself uh, as a partner to a bank? Do you see yourself as a competitor? Do you see uh, to a competitor to a bank, or do you see yourself as something completely new? Uh, I guess looking at a product roadmap, we've never built things to you know, compete with a bank. We always thought they were cool features in itself independently. So we have a debit card that connects the platform where you can track your spending. Um, you know, you can transfer cryptocurrency in and out. You can pay your bills with Bitcoin on a website. Uh, and after a while, it does seem very much like a bank. We, you know, we've never mm. intended to do it. Um, we probably don't have the scale to be considered anywhere near uh, a bank, but, um, you know, with the ideas that we've always had about bundling and unbundling services mm -hmm. and, you know, asking ourselves what sort of services would consumers want, what uh, services com consumers want to pay for. Um, I think we have uh, a few services that look quite like some of the newer uh, neobanks, especially, uh, you know, if you look at the UK, the rise of the neobanks, mm -hmm. you know, card and app solutions. Mm -hmm. And, you know, that seems quite like what we have now. Yes. Uh, I wouldn't venture as far to call ourselves a bank, but um, I guess we are experiencing uh, what consumers want in, in 2018. And overwhelmingly, they seem to want features like cryptocurrency, and they don't want to pay uh, fees related to, to regular banking. So that, that's a new perspective we're always investigating. And look, there's a tendency for um, for fintechs to avoid the phrase bank because it comes with a lot of baggage, both good and bad. It's a regulated entity. It, it's, it's, it implies a certain set of traditional services and products and ways of working. Um, but if you look at sort of PayPal or you look at Square or you, you, you look at Alipay or you look at yourselves um, and others, um, you are performing financial services. You are working in the financial services space. You, 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 you're, it's, a, it's an interesting landscape and it's one which is changing under the bank's feet as much as it is changing under your own. Yeah, I mean, I've heard it mentioned that fintech is a game of arbitrage. So you're thinking about arbitrage in terms of products. You're working on products that banks haven't put your attention to yet 
people you know are reluctant to. So you have uh, product advantage, uh, regulatory arbitrage as well. Um, rules might not have fully formed to cater for the products you're selling. Um, and I guess international arbitrage as well. So, you know, Alipay could use the strengths of where they are uh, with their Chinese base and, and also to win new markets or override, um, you know, some existing rules that may have stopped uh, incumbents from creating similar services. So I guess there are lots of opportunities. Uh, the question is, you know, which of these uh, arbitrage plays disappears very quickly and which uh, can you actually use to form uh, better services and a stronger position going forward? Talking of arbitrage, um, what role do you see um, artificial intelligence and machine learning having in your platform to help people make uh, smart decisions as to when they buy and when they sell? Yeah, is that on, is that on your roadmap uh, to, to build that sort of sophistication into the platform? Uh, I mean, we use some elements of that. Uh, for machine learning for things like understanding fraud better and, you know, keeping uh, a better contr uh, risk controls over our, our user base. Um, I, I do believe that, you know, those two things, AI and machine learning, are quite quoted as uh, one of the, the great leaps forward in not just fintech, but I guess all sort of uh, technology plays right now. Um, we, we probably haven't investigated some of these as much, but I do think it, it will play a role in how consumers interact uh, with the institution um, just because consumers will still need help. If you have a, a branchless bank, oh. um, consumers don't necessarily need less help, but they're looking for it in different ways. Um, at the end of the day, you have to cater for a lot of questions. And you know, I think uh, machine learning and AI uh, will build a really strong foundation of how to provide good objective support uh, to users. Uh, you know, in the most affordable, efficient way possible. Yeah. And, and your platform has um, sort of limit features and, you know, sort of uh, hedging capabilities and so forth. So, you know, it's, I wouldn't think it is a, a big leap to go from that sort of basic sort of um, capability to something more sophisticated where it's actually making advisory decisions or even moving, making automated transactions for you based upon on what the markets are doing. Yeah, I mean, I think we've always tried to have a goal to make objectively better financial outcomes for users. Um, then again, the CoinJet platform hasn't uh, ever been focused on one of uh, investment or speculation, although many of our users do use uh, yes. cryptocurrencies and Bitcoin for it. And so at, at this point, you know, we're not seeking to help users maximize their portfolio value. Uh, we're just giving them the tools to interact between uh and we hope to perform more uh, functions around utility because you know I think even though the narrative has been very much about the price increase, uh, I guess the early adopters like myself have always been more interested in the utility that these networks bring as opposed to uh, this is going to make me twenty percent yes. in the next X period of time. So that sort of takes you sort of to the sort of global wallet or the utility model where you you have a a wallet that perhaps is is you know currency neutral or can be hedged against multiple currencies and it's easily accessible and you can use it to move money around the world and you know when you're when you're traveling around the world you can convert into the local currency as as needed so it's a it's, it's a uh, it's a convenience play yeah i think that's the holy grail isn't it and everyone is trying to struggle for it um although there are you know a lot of barriers uh, financial technology isn't one that scales very well internationally as opposed to you know social media or you know a soft a pure software play 
around productivity because there are so many rules and regulations around uh, money and obviously there, there are risks involved as well. So um, even though everyone would like to have the McDonald's of, of fintech where you know your, your product in China works exactly to a, a person in America, uh, that's highly unlikely, I guess, both uh, because consumer behavior is so different in regards to money around the world. Uh, financial systems work quite differently from country to country and region to region, and also because of regulation as well. So um, it is a challenge, but you know I, I do think that is a very noble goal and will unlock a lot of benefits for, for uh, the future if we can get to that. Talking of China, um, I had the regional head of uh, Alipay on the show uh, a few weeks back and really learning about what Alipay is, it was very much a, an ecosystem play that's built around a payments engine. So it, it's, tra- it's, it's got a transactional element to it, but it's also got a broader um, purchasing uh, story around from you can buy theatre tickets to healthcare to a whole range of ancillary services, and a lot of it's about tethering the the, the customer to the platform. Um, in your thinking, is that sort of a direction that CoinJar so move beyond just the money element to actually also the the a broader ecosystem of other partners that built built around CoinJar? Yeah, I think currently. Discussing with my co-founder, it very much seems like the way forward, especially for some of these bigger giants is around, you know, if you want to put in one word, it's sort of messaging uh-huh. and it's not literal, maybe text messaging, but you know, when you use an Uber, you're sort of messaging a driver to say, I want to go here, take me here. You know, there's a message back saying, you know, I have this sort of reputation and it's going to cost you that, mm-hmm. that much. And, you know, you sort of accept it. So, you know, how we interact in terms of, you know, uh, platforms it's very much a form of messaging and you know those uh, networks who own very strong messaging networks already you know it's always been uh, the next logical step forward um, for a smaller company like Coinja, you ask yourself you know do we have those same network effects mm-hmm. when it comes to uh, consumer decisions and we may get there but uh, it is one that requires uh, immense scale to make these networks yes, very efficient um, so I guess we have to play for our strengths and uh, that that may be a path that we go down, but uh, you know we are relatively small Australian company, mm-hmm. uh, sm- sm- uh, a bit of a European presence in the mm-hmm. UK, but um, almost all our users based in Australia. So uh, asking ourselves, uh, you know, is this the right path? It, it may be, but again, um, it is a very uh, interesting landscape, and a lot of big players have mm. had the scale to probably execute in. The so-called messaging space a lot better than us. Yep, and China is that? Do you see that as a growth market for you? Uh, it is a growth market. I'm not sure if it is for us. Um, I think there has been a lot of hesitation for Australian companies to interact with uh, Chinese fintechs. Um, just guess culturally, it mm-hmm. is quite different. We're more uh, used to looking to the UK for advances in, in this field. Um, and I think that's maybe even not related to fintech generally, mm. but just uh, Cultural. culturally. Uh, but you know, it's undeniable that uh, China is the, the fintech capital, you know, yes. capital right now in terms of you know users and, and leverage of the networks. and also Indonesia because you've got this large population of unbanked who who perhaps um, are looking for something new or different, and um, they could be an interesting market for you. Yeah, I think especially at markets with not as much baggage in terms mm. of. Uh, Technology, 
uh, you know, a smartphone is probably your only computing device. So, you know, you even bypass desktop computing just to go to a smartphone. Yeah. Um, I think it really changes some of the paradigms for financial services. It, it creates, um, you know, banks uh, going into Asia um, have always struggled with the different regulatory regimes. And, you know, it's Asia's not one country, as, as we all know, um, but sometimes we generalise way too much. And, you know, the difference in the regular, regulatory regime of, of Singapore to Indonesia to and so on and so forth is, is, is complex. Um, to what extent do you um, exist sort of off the grid or out of the, you know, to what extent is regulation um, sort of top of mind? You know, how... how um, how active is it in your space at this time? Um, I guess it's de- depending on the direction of the company. Some uh, digital currency companies have set a manifesto to be out of control of government, and I guess you know from that uh, has to be a, a very uh, premeditated move early on mm-hmm. from the from the start. You see some of these companies registering in uh, far flung regions with with less jurisdiction. Um, for us, our strengths have always been that we are visible and we are known to everyone locally. Um, so we've always been playing in the more regulated space. Uh, you know, recently, uh, looked to acquire, uh, authorized representation for AFSL license. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, we will probably, we are always progressing more towards the regulated space. So, uh, interaction with regulators, um, probably has been one of the, uh, stronger points of the company, at least in Australia. And that would presumably help you in your conversations with the mainstream banks of how you partner with them. Uh, yes and no. I guess uh, you know the banks are always uh, private enterprises. They're just mm. looking to control their own risks. Yep. Um, so even though regulators may not have as much issue, you know, a bank is a private enterprise is always uh, looking for how best to you know reduce risks across their business. And you know, unfortunately, sometimes you're viewed as as a risky. Uh, risky type of business, but I guess we have matured very much both in terms of uh, understanding what we do and also in terms of uh, mainstream adoption as well. And it's coming to a point where so many people want cryptocurrency services. You know, you look at the Coinbase app, it's number one in the whole of America. Mm. Um, you can, if you're a bank, you're saying, why aren't I number one app in, you know, my country? I've been trying for so long. Yes. And a lot of um, conversations around risk ultimately come down to uh, hedging strategies. So, you know, where's the money and what currency is it sitting in and how do you hedge against, you know, uh, various risks? What's, what's been the approach or what sort of features have you built into uh, to CoinJar around hedging? Uh, yeah, I mean, we've got internal company controls. We do our own hedging on third-party exchanges. Um, with the new volumes, we're also creating a new product called CoinJar Exchange, and that will help. Uh, help us hedge better on our own platform and allow users to also access uh, uh, better pricing and liquidity as well with a new platform. So um, it's generally the direction that a lot of exchanges have gone to. You can market make in a small quantity. Um, as you grow, you have to figure out better ways to be a bit more efficient uh, with balancing uh, the buying and selling of digital currency. Do you see a time when you would offer or maybe through a partner um, provide capabilities to do lending, to do credit? Yeah, I, I mean, that's one of the more profitable bases in financial services, um, you know, especially with the crypto space. And you look at you know, buying and selling, and it, it is very much 
at times you can provide the best convenience and best rate. Um, but in terms of, you know, payments, especially, you know, most people do work toward lending. Um, we haven't really explored that right now, but we are quite familiar with many models going around. Um, again, personally, my objective is always to get better financial outcomes out of people. And uh, even though some of these new products may look quite snazzy, I'm always quite reluctant to say, you know, that is a better product than maybe even a traditional credit card if a user knows how to uh, utilize all the features and also have responsibility around their credit lines. Um, so a lot of millennials right now, you know, they don't have access to traditional credit products that maybe people in an older generation may have. So uh, I guess we are always, at least in the company, asking ourselves, how can we provide better financial outcomes to people? Um, and we do have some thoughts around credit, but haven't played in that space yet. And, and talking about millennials and also sort of the, the, the next generation, the, the so-called Gen Zs, you know, their expectations and requirements for banking and financial services are quite different in many ways to perhaps uh, people in the sort of the Gen Xs and, uh, and earlier generations. Um, and their appetite to perhaps work with non-bank players um, is probably different as well. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you know. I think for me, it boils down to uh, how much they value a service is, how much they want to pay for it. Uh, and I guess millennials aren't very interested in paying for their bank account at all. So for me, I think uh, my true test of how willing uh, millennials willing to adopt the product is, will they pay for a sort of product, a financial product that helps them manage their money better? And it's increasingly hard nowadays because just to believe that many things on the internet are free like my email account i shouldn't have to pay for any sort of financial service but it, it does take quite a lot of money to up to run these services um, so mm. I, I think that's the big question to see how willing millennials want to adopt some of these new services so whether it's a commission model or some sort of surcharge model or, or a pay for service model um it's still probably it hasn't been decided yet. Yeah, um, but again, this is, I think it's a very rapidly moving industry and I guess the audience is also getting used to some of these new uh, products that are out there, you know, like product financing and things like that. Mm. Even in Australia and America, they're quite new introductions to the market and it's quite surprising some of the uptake of these products have actually been quite positive. And, and I presume that, you know, at some point when you've got your platform making solid recommendations that are driving better returns for your customers, then it becomes a much easier conversation to say, well, we're going to charge you this commission because our, our, our platform is driving these sorts of benefits to you. you know, if you'd been perhaps at a traditional bank or if your money had been performed, you know, in a, managed in a traditional way, you've got this return, but using uh, CoinJar, you've got this return and with, with, with this sort of benefit. So it becomes a, a, a conversation that's much clearer on value and, and um, you know, it, it, it's, it's a lot less ambiguous. Yeah, uh, again, I'm not 100% sure that, you know, we will ever go into the uh, wealth management space, although, again, a lot of people take us to be sort of a portfolio managers of digital currency. Sort of a blockchain or, 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 or Bitcoin for spaceship, sort of spaceship version of Bitcoin. Yeah, I think for us, you know, it's more about, you know, convenience, customer service, experience. Um, I, I think those things people are more willing to pay for. Um, and I guess it's how do we deliver the experience rather than thinking about, you know, what product per se. And I guess for us, it's 
it, it evolves. You know, we, we have so many new features all the time. And that's based on, you know, feedback we get from customers. Um, you know, what, what can we pull off in this day and age? Um, yeah. So talking more broadly around blockchain, um, a lot of the conversation around blockchain tends to focus on, on Bitcoin, but then there's the broader implications of blockchain as a decentralized economic model. Um, do you see um, Conjar also playing in that sort of decentralized uh, economic model for, you know, for people who are, say, processing transactions and payments and so forth? Or uh, you know, to what extent is, does the broader blockchain uh, technology apply? Yeah, maybe not so much in the last 12 months, but the previous 12 months, uh, you know, at one time, the conversation was very much focused on, on blockchain technology. And, and after this time, uh, it's still not quite apparent where it's most efficiently used. Um, I, the products in the blockchain space, which are most exciting to me, are still largely revolving around money or transfers of value. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, you look at Ripple and Stellar, um, you know, two protocols who have interesting features to make these transfers uh, a lot more efficient. Uh, I, I do see the greatest promise of always hanging fruit in some of these things. Uh, my take on the blockchain ecosystem is many times the commercial partnerships and the commercial benefits uh, are more important, at least initially. Mm-hmm. Uh, compared to the technological benefits. So, you know, if you're selling into a company or selling into an existing network to replace them, uh, the conversations, at least for the uh, decision makers, are always how will this increase the bottom line as opposed to uh, how can this technology be, you know, so much better than my current stack. And um, especially with, uh, you know, some of these systems very ingrained and uh, already working, it's really not worth for many of these institutions to, to try something so new uh, and take those risks. So uh, I think the, the more immediate ones around value transfer, um, especially around currencies, have the most promise. And we'll see how uh, commercially viable some of the, the other blockchain projects are going forward. Do you see um, smart contracts being being uh, integrated into your platform at some point? Yeah, that's another interesting thing, right? Smart contracts are very interesting in theory, but how it works and how it benefits people is still slight a mystery. I mean, right now, uh, you know, Ethereum's Ethereum network is being used to breed uh, electronic cats, oh. and that's in vogue right now. But you know, if you ask myself all my other services, what would I want to put on a smart contract? I couldn't really give you an answer right now so i couldn't give you an answer as well of what product on a smart contract would use would work best on our users because there's usually some other way to do it yes which works quite well now but you know i'm not discounting smart contracts as a huge field in the future no so what do you see what do you see is the the next sort of six to twelve months what's your focus over the next six to twelve uh for coinja yeah so we've got a few products coming out um I think I've already let slip. We've got the, the new uh, other digital currencies being added to the platform. Uh, we've got this new exchange platform, order book exchange, and that would be geared toward more professional users or users who have uh, experience in Forex trading and other services like that. Um, we also have a managed investment scheme coming out in Australia. If you're a high net worth individual or you run another investment fund, and would like to gain exposure to Bitcoin or other altcoin prices, it's an easy way to 
uh, gain exposure without actually holding uh, coins yourself. Um, and that's just a gap in the market we've realized. Um, but you know, going forward, we are a consumer-focused company. Uh, we try and make the best products that consumers want and, um, and that we want to use personally. So I think that's an ethos ever since the start, and I think that will continue to evolve. And are you based, based mostly here in Australia, or do you have uh, operations outside Australia? Uh, we've got an entity in the UK. Uh, it's unstaffed now, but I should be returning to try and drive growth in that region. Uh, yeah. It's a kind of a tricky region for Bitcoin companies. Uh, there's no real established oh. player in the UK market for Bitcoin services. And that's partly because uh, banking is still a, a huge roadblock in that area. And Brexit must be having all sorts of interesting complexity. <laughs> yes. Um, but, you know, we've always uh, liked the UK. Uh, there are a lot of interesting fintech projects that we've learned from there. And I, I think we continue to tap the region uh, for both talent and hiring. Uh, you know, good software engineers are hard to find in Australia. Yep. Um, especially, you know, you such a... There's a high demand and you're always competing against larger companies. So I think not only do we see uh, international growth as one way to have more growth in terms of the company, but also to de-risk the hiring efforts as well. Mm -hmm. And what sort of people are you looking for? Because you're on radio, so we'll give you a plug. Sure. Um, you know, I, I think any talented software developers are uh, always interesting. Uh, Front-end, you know, UX, uh, these problems haven't re been really solved in, in the crypto space, right? And um, that usually takes a big portion of our time figuring out how to explain some very complicated layers of technology in the simplest way to consumers. Brilliant. So, look, thank you very much for, for joining me on Breaking Banks. There's so much we could talk about here, and um, I really look forward to, to watching uh, CoinJar over the, over the coming weeks and months. Thanks, Simon. Thank you very much. Cheers. So that's this week's show. We're nearly at year's end, and this is my sixth or seventh show. We've already recorded great interviews with Lisa Schutz talking about data, regulation, and privacy. Jason Potts, who leads RMIT's Blockchain Center, about, and we talked about, you guessed it, blockchain and crypto economics. We had a stellar interview with the guys at AltBank, one of the region's most interesting neobank startups, and a really interesting interview with the regional head of Alipay, talking Alibaba, Alipay, Ant Financial, and Chinese FinTech. As part of our approach of talking with fintechs, startups, and traditional banks, I also met with the first of the large regional banks and spent some time with Dylan, who heads up some of the most interesting areas of emerging technology at CBA. Next year, we'll continue the conversation, talk to the banks across the region. We'll be at Money 2020 in Singapore in March, interviewing all the movers and shakers and provokers and disruptors from across fintech. And thank you for listening. Thank you for supporting me as I, as I learn the ropes of online radio broadcasting. Apologies for my mistakes. Um, I'm a slow learner in some areas. And I look forward to hearing from you over the Christmas break and into the new year. Download the podcast, subscribe to the newsletter at asia.breakingbanks.com um, and follow us on bbanksasia. Um, if you're getting value from Breaking Banks Asia, spread the word. If you'd like to sponsor us in 2018, definitely reach out. Um, and if there's something you'd like me to cover, if there's something I'm missing, get in touch. So thank you for listening and all the very best for 2018. All the best.